Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and we've done it. We've finished talking about hell. If you're a In the Shift listener and you've been listening along for the last few episodes, you'll know we've just had a four-episode discussion on why, really on why I think the idea of hell as eternal damnation is not the message of Christianity, it's not what Jesus was really talking about, and there are all sorts of problems that come from centering that kind of idea at the uh, foundation of a religious tradition like Christianity. And because we've stopped talking about hell now, which is good news, we can start talking about something else, maybe something a bit more uplifting, like the death of Jesus and the cross. Yeah. So the cross is interesting, isn't it? It's imagery we're very used to, we're very familiar with, whether you're a religious person, a Christian person or not, because the cross is everywhere. We're familiar with it uh, being the symbol of Christian faith. And yet it's a shocking symbol when you stop to think about it. It's an, it's an execution device of the Roman Empire. And to have that as the central symbol of a religious movement is, it's kind of like having an electric chair hanging around your neck on a necklace, or if on the top of every church building was an image of a firing squad. It's shocking. So what's going on here? For some people, Jesus' death on the cross means that God can now forgive us and we can go to heaven when we die instead of hell. But if you've been listening along, then you'll be familiar with the fact that I don't think that's really what's going on in this story. But if we talk about God as love, and maybe that God is reconciling all people, then sometimes we don't quite know what to do with the death of Jesus anymore. Why does it matter? Was it really all that necessarily? Did it really mean anything? Does Jesus save us? And if so, what from? And how? So we're going to spend three episodes talking about this idea, and today we'll be talking about the idea of sacrifice, next time we'll be talking about solidarity, and in the third episode we'll be talking about the subversion of power. So this is episode 14 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So this episode of In The Shift is titled, Why the Death of Jesus Wasn't and Was a Sacrifice. And I want to start by talking about metaphor. And the really important realisation that when the Bible talks about lots of big things, like God even, and also the meaning of the death of Jesus, it uses imagery and metaphor all the time. And it's helpful to realise that this is what's going on, that this is the kind of language that's being used Uh, And what that helps us to do is sometimes recognise what is being said, but also what might not be being said. So we're going to begin by thinking a little bit about metaphors. And one of the primary things that a metaphor does is to help us understand something new, or maybe to see something that we already understand in a new kind of way, by using something else, a familiar object or idea. So we can compare A with B, and A is the new thing, and B is the familiar thing. Or maybe A is the thing that's a little bit harder to understand, and so we use a metaphor to give us a sense of landing, a sense of grounding. I think about the metaphor of life as a roller coaster, which uh, has uh, a function of bringing to mind the sense of ups and downs, and maybe of adrenaline, and maybe of pause. Uh, There are all sorts of ways we could think about how that metaphor functions. But we also need to think about the limits of the metaphor. Clearly, when we say life is a roller coaster, there are all sorts of things we aren't saying. 
we aren't saying life is operated by a 14-year-old kid who's barely paying attention. Uh, We're not saying that life is a 60-second ride of terror. Uh, But there are things we're saying. And so the metaphor has uses and the metaphor has limitations. And all metaphors function like that. And for them to work well for us, we're supposed to be able to see the similarities but also pick up on the limits kind of intuitively in that sense. Uh, and they don't do they don't work very well if we can't do either of those things, if we don't see the similarities and also if we don't see the limits. So if we uh, literalize or overplay the metaphor, as sometimes we tend to do, especially in religion, especially in theology, then sometimes the metaphor can become a bit ridiculous. Uh, one of the examples we have in the New Testament text, for example, is when the Bible talks about redemption or to redeem. And this idea has almost become so familiar within Christianity that it's like the exclusive meaning of it is shaped by the Jesus story, you know, that Jesus died to, for our redemption to redeem us. Um, and yet we miss the fact that that word was a common word in usage before Jesus came along. It's not primarily a word that was originally used about God, but about slavery. And that redemption was about acquiring the freedom for a slave. That's what you would do when you would redeem. You would redeem someone by purchasing their liberation. And so the metaphor is supposed to provoke these images of freedom and liberation. One of the things that happened in the early centuries after Jesus is that some of the church fathers took the metaphor a bit too far. So they overliteralize the metaphor. So this image that is supposed to bring to mind a sense of liberation and freedom ends up with all sorts of interesting theories about how maybe the devil has uh, has essentially got humanity captive, uh, like a kidnapping of some kind, and there's a price that needs to be paid to acquire our freedom. And so God and the devil are having this kind of uh, situation unfolding whereby God is trying to free humanity by following his own rules and entering into some kind of bargain with the devil and says, hey, what if I give you Jesus, then you give me all the people? And then the devil says, okay. And so then the devil gives God all the people in exchange for Jesus. But then Jesus rises from the dead. And so it's a trick and the devil ends up with nothing and God frees the people. Uh, Sometimes this is called the ransom theory of the atonement. And it really, you know, it took legs and flew within the first few centuries after Jesus. But it's at this point a really over-literalized metaphor. The metaphor has been pushed too far, really beyond the sense of its meaning, because the metaphor is supposed to bring to mind this notion of freedom and liberation, but it's turned into an elaborate scheme whereby God and the devil are playing out some kind of cosmic battle to which we are sort of bystanders being uh, lumped in either one side or the other. Some metaphor that's supposed to uh, function in one way has now become an over-literalized cosmic kidnapping case. And this is really easy to do when we forget what it is that metaphors are trying to do for us. Uh, Another set of metaphors that sit within the New Testament text in particular in relation to Jesus and Jesus' death, uh, these relate largely to sacrifice. And at times the New Testament writers use this language of Jesus giving his life as a sacrifice. Now, from the 11th century onwards, this becomes really one of the most popular ways of talking about Jesus' death on the cross. It's important to note that because prior to that, this was not the primary way that people talked about the meaning of Jesus' death. But Anselm, who's a theologian in the 11th century, 
develops a particular theory. It's often called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. Yes. Uh, And Anselm lived in a society where there were lords and peasants and a system that's built on honour. And in the society, if a peasant did something to bring dishonour to their lord, then they owe that lord a debt. Maybe they need to work for years to pay off that debt, to restore honour to the lord that they have uh, damaged. And Anselm makes a correlation here between this kind of system and God, whether he realises he's drawing on his own context quite as explicitly as this or not. But the suggestion is this, that essentially because of uh, human rebellion or sin or whatever you might like to call it, humans have dishonoured their Lord, that is God. But because it's God we've dishonoured, it's a debt we cannot pay back. There's no way we can ever restore God's honour back to God. And even our lives or even our deaths are not enough to restore because this dishonour is so great because we've dishonoured God. And so Jesus, so Anselm talks about this in Cur Deus Homo, which is why God became man. Uh, So Jesus comes and dies essentially as the sacrifice, uh, as a debt repayment to restore the honour to God that we could not pay. Uh, And so Jesus becomes our way of restoring God's honour back to God. Maybe this makes sense in Anselm's time, but if you read the New Testament, you don't actually get a, a big sense of God's honour being besmirched, um, especially around the notion of Jesus' death and Jesus' death as sacrifice. Uh, So later on, a few hundred years later, uh, this was kind of brought to awareness, in particular by someone called John Calvin in the 16th century. Now Calvin, before he was a theologian, was a lawyer, and perhaps that has some influence on the way he shapes up his understanding of the notion of sacrifice. So he envisages this courtroom kind of scenario with notions of guilt and of sentencing, So for Calvin, humans are essentially in the dock, in the courtroom, having sinned against God, pronounced guilty by God the judge, a God who is holy and just. And because God is holy and just, the only right response to our sin is death and eternal punishment and hell too, I guess, um, because God is eternal, so the punishment has to last forever. And there's nothing we can do to make this right. We are in the dock, we stand accused, we are named as guilty by the judge and we are deserving of this punishment. But then Jesus enters the picture. His death uh, pays essentially the price as a sacrifice. And because he's a truly innocent man, uh, his sacrifice can in fact uh, pay the penalty for the sin that we have committed. He stands in our place taking the death that we deserve. And this is enough to satisfy the wrath of God And so God now can forgive us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So from the 16th century onwards, especially within the Protestant and Reformed tradition, uh, and in more modern times into the evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic mind, this is the only often, or at least the primary way of understanding how Jesus' death on the cross saves us from our sins. But there are a few problems with taking the sacrifice metaphor and pushing it into this very uh, legal courtroom framework and over-literalizing it, we have to ask the question, especially in light of the stories of Jesus, why can't God just forgive us? And these are some of the questions that emerged in our conversations around hell as well. God asks us to forgive. What kind of God requires the blood of a truly innocent man before God can forgive us? You know, God's like, 
I need someone to die, but not just anybody. I need the most innocent person ever to die. And then I'll be able to forgive everybody. Like, that's a very curious idea, isn't it? A Christian's actually on the side of human sacrifice in this version of events. And, you know, if you watch a film and there's people doing human sacrifice in it, you know, this is not, this is not a good thing. This is what we might call a bad thing. And yet, curiously, within some, some ways of understanding uh, the Jesus story, uh, Christians can come to think that, in fact, human sacrifice is not bad. It's just not enough. And so what's required is the perfect human sacrifice, which is Jesus. Which I feel like we should have some problems with that. There's some other questions that we ask of this framework as well. Are the angry crowd who cry out for Jesus to be killed, are they actually the ones doing God's will here? And is Jesus saving us from God? Is that who we need saving from? Or in a more generous reading, I suppose we could say if Jesus was God, then God is saving us from God. Funnily enough, I think if you read the Gospels, it's not really the story they tell. So is there another way of thinking about what's going on with the sacrifice language in the New Testament text? Well, that's what I want to suggest to you in this episode. So let's uh, backtrack and let's start to think about the emergence of the notion of sacrifice itself within human society. And to do so, we're going to draw on the insights of uh, René Girard. Now, Girard, and I'm going to, again, as I do in many of these podcast episodes, uh, grossly overgeneralize complicated and nuanced positions just for sake of time and ease of understanding. But if you want to go and do a few years of Girardian study, I'm sure you can probably find a place to do that somewhere. Uh, anyway, I'm going to bastardize it and oversimplify it, but here we go. Uh, Gerard essentially posits that as humans develop into Homo sapiens, we develop this, or part of our development is through this mimetic capacity. Now, in a really basic sense, mimesis or mimetic capacity is about the ability that we have to imitate others. And through our imitation and our mirroring of others, this is actually about how we develop our own sense of consciousness as a human species. And that our inner consciousness, our sense of self, actually develops through our interactions with others. And if you think about early childhood, you know, as some of you all know, we've got a little baby in the house at the moment, just about 12 weeks old this coming week, little Rufus, and what you see is this sense of mirroring that's integral to his development. And so as I smile, he learns to smile. As he looks at me, he, he's learning all the time. He stares at me, stares at his mum, stares at everybody, are getting a sense of what it is to be in the world. And he's learning uh, through this sense of reflection. And so it's through this kind of mirroring and this mimesis that we learn what it is to have emotions, to have desires, to have sense, to be by mirroring our parents and our families and, and so on. And this really shapes our internal sense of self. And we move beyond in this process then the base animalistic drive just to survive and we begin to desire those things that others desire. Uh, and so mimesis often has to do with the fact that our desire reflects the desire of others that we see. And this is not just something that happens for us as little babies or infants as we grow, but continues to be a core part of the human experience that when that our desires are shaped by others' desires. 
This is probably the core driver of social influencing, right? And so uh, for all you social influencers out there, God bless you, uh, who appear on my Instagram feed and, you know, I'm talking about the latest thing they've been sent. Um, I guess the idea of this is that as we see others desiring something, uh, we are encouraged to desire it also. I think probably advertisers, marketers, uh, and people like that understand mimetic desire better than most of us. Celebrity endorsements are probably operating off a similar framework. So our sense of self is formed in the context of the interplay of human relationships. Uh, and this has really positive and challenging uh, implications. You know, we experience community in really unique, profound ways. We're able to develop a sense of culture because we mirror and reflect and sense and develop inner consciousness and get a sense of desire both for ourselves and for others. And this can be positive in the sense that we respond to one another in these very human ways with love and with commitment and with embrace of others and even innovation and technological development comes from our ability to sense what it is that others might be wanting or needing. In the sense that, from a Christian perspective, we might be talking about this as the image of God, the Imago Dei, or at least one aspect of it. So that's a really positive aspect of mimetic capacity. But this can also operate in quite a negative sense, because we also find that we are in competition with others. Because if I desire what you desire, then we both desire the same thing, and now we're in competition with one another. We can quickly become fearful or suspicious of others' motives. We can doubt intentions. This is all these quite uniquely human traits. And this kind of anger and fear can spread very quickly within communities as we mirror each other, as we compete with each other, as our desires spiral in competition with one another. Feuds develop. One small act of violence, maybe it's even accidental, can spiral into a cycle of retributive violence. Small altercations turn into major incidents and even into war. And so... Uh, Humans who have this amazing capacity for culture and community and love and commitment and beauty also have a unique capacity for hatred, for wide-reaching, destructive and violence and evil. Something that, again, we don't see perhaps in the rest of the animal kingdom. And probably the Christian tradition has named that notion as sin. In this sense, violence can actually be contagious And entire human communities could be wiped out if this kind of violence goes unchecked, unless there's a way of managing this. So what Gerard suggests is that humans, subconsciously, really, develop a way of limiting the damage of this kind of violence spiral. And the way that this happens is by directing violence, in a lesser sense, toward a particular individual, often, or sometimes a group within the community, Uh, So maybe it's one person, maybe it's a minority of some kind um, who becomes the scapegoat, who essentially serves as a way of limiting the violence of a community rather than of us all competing with one another, blaming one another, spiraling into an an irreversible uh, downward uh, spiral of violence and death. uh, We instead join together and turn our attention towards somebody or some group who can be blamed for the problems that we have, we can take out our violence on them, thereby limiting the damage to the wider community over time. The scapegoat is sacrificed, and the community can now relax and feel like, oh, we've settled things. Now, the interesting sense about this in Gerard's theory is that uh, we're usually very unaware of the way that we do this. 
the scapegoating doesn't really work if you know exactly that that's what you're doing. So you don't tend to gather around and say, we all want to kill each other, so let's uh, centre our violent th- thoughts on uh, somebody else so that we can just all join together and kill them. It doesn't really work that way. The scapegoating has to be a bit more subtle than that. And then over time what happens within communities, and especially as religious traditions emerge, is that this flows into the model of sacrifice that we see in so many ancient communities. The ritual of sacrifice becomes a way to channel our violence and blame towards someone or something. Once the sacrifice has been made, order is restored. And so ancient religions develop different ways of organising this process, different ways of helping us to facilitate keeping the gods happy, keeping the communities at some level of peace. Now, of course, the sacrifice to really work has to be unable to truly fight back. That's what keeps the system working. Uh, So in many contexts, you have human sacrifices that are made. Uh, In in even more cases, you have animal sacrifices that are often made, that somehow the blood shed of these animals is enough to reconcile the community to God and to one another. Uh, In many ancient Greek cities, you've even got historical records that they would keep captives and criminals and lock up Uh, just in case they needed some extra sacrifices, in case things were starting to get out of hand and they needed to appease the gods and calm the community. So then in ancient religion, sacrifice is a ritualistic way of of channeling, directing, and therefore limiting violence, whether it be human sacrifice or animal sacrifice. These sacrifices become the thing that bear our sins. And as I said before, it works as long as we're blinded to what we're doing. It all seems very legitimate at the time, you know. So we develop these religious myths that sit around them that help us to make sense of why we need to do this. And often what that does is hide the reality of what we're actually doing from ourselves. Now in the modern world, you might think, well, that sounds all very primitive and and, and ancient and out of date. We think we've moved maybe beyond these kind of sacrificial systems, this kind of scapegoating but it doesn't actually make us any less likely to scapegoat, to see people as the cause of the problems that we have in more recent history. Uh, There are plenty of examples of the way in which this plays out, whether you think about the witch trials. Uh, I remember, you know, studying the the Crucible when I was at high school and uh, this famous play which was about the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts, but at the same time was also about the rise of McCarthyism and this hysterical kind of anti-communist um, moment that it was taking place in the USA in the twentieth mid twentieth century. Uh, think about in Nazi Germany and the way in which the Jew Jewish people functioned as a scapegoat for the very real economic and political um, challenges that faced the nation of Germany. So instead of having to grapple with that, it's much easier to find a scapegoat to blame for that. Uh, Stalin's great purges within the USSR. If you think about the way apartheid functions and even racial segregation, if you think about more recently in North America and the vilification of Mexicans, for example, by um, by a sitting US president for whom uh, helping people to grapple with complex economic, economic and political change is is a step too far. And so instead, it's just much easier to say, Here, it's these people, these are the ones who are doing it to us, and if we simply get rid of them, eliminate them, dehumanise them, then that will make us all feel better. 
Now, to all of those who can see the scapegoating mechanism for what it is, it looks evil. So from the outside, you can point at it and say, this is an evil system. But for those for whom the narrative is working, the story is working, they're unable to actually see the evil of the system because it's serving a function and a purpose for them. And so we always feel justified for the scapegoats we blame for our problems. This is a fundamental aspect of human society. But what Gerard suggests is that there is one religious tradition which is built entirely around the identity, life and innocence of the scapegoat, of the victim, and that is Christianity. Now even in the Old Testament, there are suggestions that the sacrificial scapegoating mechanism is not all it's cracked up to be. You know, we uh, think of Abraham and Isaac, the story that in one sense is a story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his only son, which is not an unusual request for the day. But the story finishes with a God who rejects human sacrifice and says, this is not what I desire from you. Then you also start to read in the prophets this criticism of sacrificial ritual, this criticism of all of the blood that was being spilled as animal after animal after animal was sacrificed on the altar to try and atone for the sins of the people. And then we have the story of Jesus, which is the story of the one who is sacrificed in order to restore order. So we have religious powers who partner with political powers to remove the offensive person, the one who's causing the problems. The death of Jesus is supposed to make all of this agitation go away. If you read the Gospels, you find this pops up time and time again in the story, this hope that if we kill this Jesus, all of this goes away, get things back to the way they were. And so in this framework, in a paradoxical sense, the sacrifice of Jesus does not save us because God needs the blood of an innocent victim but because in fact the divine is revealed to be mysteriously present in the scapegoat. The one who was punished as a supposed enemy of God turns out to be where we find the divine uniquely present. So at the cross and the crucifixion, we see plainly and clearly the full implications of human violence, the killing of the innocent, the scapegoating. Jesus suffers under the weight of this. And yet in the midst of this moment offers forgiveness rather than to repeat the cycle of violence and blame. A forgiveness you're invited to receive and to participate in and to go on offering to others. In a sense, there's this idea that you are reconciled with God and go and reconcile with each other. And so in an ironic sense then, maybe it's ironic. I don't know if it's ironic. I've been confused ever since Alanis Morissette um, Let's call this irony. Jesus' death as sacrifice is used by God to demonstrate the futility of sacrifice and to save us from what we do to one another. And then what you see in the New Testament is the reframing of the notion of sacrifice and, and the idea starts to be used in very, very different ways than it has been within ancient religious systems. So for example, the writer of, uh, of the book of Hebrews says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Well, this is a total upturning of what is even meant by sacrifice and it's been reshaped by this particular story of the death of Jesus. So I think, in fact, the logic of 
the old theory, if you like, which is not actually that old, but the theory of Calvin from the 16th century, that God needs Jesus to die in order to take the punishment that we deserve. I think this is exactly the opposite of what the Christ story is supposed to be doing. And that is that Jesus enters into the human system of retributive and redemptive violence, experiences it, exposes it, rejects it, and then invites us to move beyond it. I think that the centrality then of the cross, the symbol of the cross, and then the Eucharist, which is this meal of of bread and wine, which symbolizes body and blood broken. I think these symbols, cross and Eucharist, can symbolize for us an awareness of our potential for violence and dehumanization, our tendency to place blame on others, our tendency to exclude others from community and fellowship and to crucify and to kill and to sacrifice others so that we might feel better about ourselves. There are also symbols that remind us that Jesus' death is a death that identifies the divine with the victim, the victim of our potential for violence and hatred and, and, and what the Christian tradition calls sin is in fact uh, the place where we find the divine to be most present. And then that prompts the question, where am I most likely to find God now? If the divine is found in the excluded one, where will I find God now? And so we are invited to participate in a new kind of life. Instead of continuing to victimize others, I take the bread and wine as symbols of the end of victimization, of marginalization, of blame and of scapegoating. And if I have suffered under the exclusion and abuse of others, as many of us have, then I find in the symbol of the cross and the bread and the wine a sense of divine presence who identifies with me and does not offer me vengeance but instead new life. And in this sense then, I think the cross, I think Jesus' death takes on an entirely new way of thinking about what it means to die as a sacrifice for our sin. It's not because God needed the blood of an innocent man in order to forgive us, but that God identifies God as present with and present in, present as the sacrifice itself that we so willingly make in order to expose and to name our problem, our fundamental concern, and then to offer us a different way of being in new life. So that's one way of thinking about the meaning of the cross and what it's saying to talk about Jesus' death as sacrifice. Next time on In The Shift, we're actually going to continue talking about Jesus' death and we're going to talk about the idea of divine solidarity. I'll see you then.